Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Hey, if this is your first time listening, I strongly recommend going back to episode one, where warm waters halt, to listen to the story from the beginning. Okay, here's the show. Cavalry Audio. This poem was, seems so straightforward, but it did seem tricky. Like you have to really think about every single word. And that's the way a poet writes, is they think out every single word, every single punctuation mark, every single rhyme. So I spent a lot more time just going over the poem, and I tell you, I must have read it about 5,000 times. And he said in another interview that it will just come to you if you keep rereading it. It will come to you. It will come to you. And I believe that. <laughs> Petra Perkins is an author, a poet, an adventurer, and most importantly for our purposes, a treasure hunter. What she's discussing here is, of course, the poem written by Forrest Fenn. Six cryptic stanzas that have confounded legions of his fans for more than a decade. The interpretation or understanding of this poem is supposedly the key to discovering the location where Forrest hid his treasure. And those interpretations vary wildly, depending on who you ask. Sometimes I thought, well, he accidentally did this, or punctuated it this way, or he accidentally put this word in. Or maybe he didn't mean to be so secretive about this line or something. But, you know, I learned toward the end that you don't second guess him. He's a brilliant man. I think he worked on that poem for years, just like he said he did, to get it just right. So I believe he had intent on everything he wrote in there. And he was leading us on a path. By the way, it's a beautiful path. Welcome back to X Marks the Spot. You're listening to episode two, In the Canyon Down. In the last episode, we were introduced to both the treasure hunt and the man behind it, Forrest Fenn. Mr. Fenn, a native of Texas, was a combat pilot in Vietnam, and later in his life, a successful gallery owner in the desert city of Santa Fe, New Mexico. No stranger to adventure, Forrest was fond of taking big risks and putting on a good show. Consequences be damned. When, in his 60s, a terminal cancer diagnosis forced him to look death in the face, Forrest smiled back and came up with his boldest plan of all. He would fill a treasure chest with gold and jewels, lay down beside it at a secret location in the mountains, and take his own life. 
but not until he wrote a poem that would lead someone to the exact spot of his untimely demise. If that someone could only decipher his mysterious and seemingly nonspecific verse. But fate had bigger plans for Forrest. He beat the cancer, and he would have to wait for the glory of his final curtain. It would be 20 years before Forrest was again called to action by the adventurer that had been quietly resting in his soul. Only this time, it wasn't to end his life rather than surrender it to cancer. He was a healthy man of 80. Sure, he had slowed down a bit, but he still enjoyed time spent in his beloved Rocky Mountains. And so in the late summer of 2010, Forrest finally did it. He hid the chest in what once was to be his final resting place and published his memoir, The Thrill of the Chase, the book that contained the poem that would consume the lives of thousands and thousands of treasure hunters for years to come. Here's more with longtime friend of Forrest Fenn, the author Douglas Preston. Forrest showed me a number of drafts of the poems. And when people learned this, they just went nuts. They were like, oh my God, can't you remember those early drafts? Because the first time he showed me the poem, I had said to him, Forrest, you know, there are a lot of really smart people in the world. And they're a lot smarter than you think. And I hope this poem is really hard because if it isn't, it'd be really a tragedy if you were to issue this poem and three days later, someone found the treasure. And Forrest said, don't worry, it's so hard, it'll take them 900 years to find it. But he did rewrite it a few times. He, he had to rewrite it because the original version of the poem talked about his own body being there. And we had many conversations and I thought, you know, it's not fair for me to go looking for the treasure. And I felt like that might be kind of a betrayal of my friendship of him, sort of a, you know, going behind his back or whatever. I mean, he never said I couldn't, but my interest is in what were the nine clues in the poem. That would be interesting to know those clues. Maybe it will turn out that Forrest was a devious and misled people, but that just wasn't my experience with him. And Mr. Preston isn't the only one. It is widely believed, though never confirmed, that the first clue in the poem is, as mentioned in episode one, begin it where warm waters halt. Why is that thought to be the first clue? Because of the word begin, most likely, but also because most people believe that the first stanza is just for setup, a placeholder, really, because there's no mention of specific landmarks or natural features that are present in later stanzas. For the purposes of this podcast, we will be operating under the assumption that the first clue is indeed, begin it where warm waters halt. And man, is that a doozy. Here's Petra Perkins again. I don't know why. I was convinced I was going to figure out where it was. I didn't know if I would ever find it exactly, but I was going to figure out that poem no matter what. And then he went on the Today Show a few times and gave clues, and those helped. And so I think putting together all of his clues from TV and clues from his interviews and working my own research, I did a lot of research in gold. I was headed toward gold. And so about 2013, 14, I figured it had to do with some 
event about gold. So I figured maybe it's where gold was first found in the Rocky Mountains. So I went to Montana because I learned that the first gold in Montana was found in 1862 in Bannock. And he did hang out in Montana quite a bit when he was a kid, fishing and riding horses and camping. So I figured he went to Bannock, Montana, which is uh, a very cool place. It's a ghost town. And it seemed to fit a lot of the clues about warm water because the Jackson Hot Springs comes into Bannock. I just had a vague idea that was somewhere around there. So I, I stopped pursuing it that way and started pursuing it more logically and more online, doing research instead of boots on the ground. And I decided then and there that if I couldn't figure out the very first clue, I should not keep going on with this crazy obsession. Petra seemed prepared to give up. And she did, for a while. We'll hear more from Miss Perkins later on. But her story is just one of many that highlight the power of the human ego and how it spurs action and often accomplishment. However, just as often... Blind faith in our own intellect or ability can make us look foolish, or worse. That brings us to the tragic side of the Forest Fan treasure hunt. Jeff Murphy, Randy Billu, Paris Wallace, Eric Ashby, and Michael Wayne Sexton. Five men between the ages of 31 and 54, each separately following their own solves they deciphered from Forrest's poem. Some in completely different states died at the unforgiving hands of nature, either falling from a cliff, drowning in rapids, or succumbing to the elements in the deep snow of a mountain pass. Their last breaths filled with cold, metallic air. These men failed to heed the repeated warnings of Fenn himself. Here's what Forrest told Douglas Preston. He said, it's not way out in the mountains. It's in a place that an 80-year-old man can get to fairly easily. Because people at this point were rafting down the Rio Grande, they were falling off cliffs, they were dying and so forth. They said, look, I keep telling people, it's not in any place that an 80-year-old man couldn't easily get to. I keep saying that, but people don't believe me, but that's the truth. There are countless stories of seekers who found themselves out of their element and in life-threatening situations. John Morgan, a seeker from New York, convinced two of his friends to join him on an excursion to a dangerous canyon in the Rio Grande, just outside of Taos, New Mexico. So convinced was he of his solve. So my solve for warm water's halt involves uh, fishing regulation. Several people kind of came to this conclusion as well, but in that area of the country, there are special fishing designations about where people can and can't fish for trout and different kinds of fish that grow in the streams. And, you know, it's well known among treasure hunters that Forrest was a big fan of fishing. And so for me, Warm Waters Halt indicated a particular bridge beyond which some like fishing pamphlet that I found for New Mexico talked about the warm waters and the cold waters which were different terms used to discuss fishing regulations. So Warm Waters Halt was a bridge just south of Taos where the fishing regulations changed from cold to warm water. And I was like, that is bulletproof. There's no way 
that that can't be exactly because you know where you know, how else do warm waters just halt it didn't sound to me like spring or something or a geyser it sounded like something that you would be able to say like this is the exact place where warm waters halt and cold waters begin we'll be back with more x marks the spot after this the generally agreed upon second clue from the poem is and take it in the canyon down incredibly vague right but in the mind of a solver turned seeker when a connection can be made between two random clues there's little convincing them that they may want to take a beat and consider what they're doing gold fever takes over so yeah, take it in the canyon down. I was like, this is great. It's a canyon. I started at the bridge, then walked north. But, you know, down to me meant like from the edge of the canyon down into the canyon. So take, like, it could be the journey itself. Like, take the journey. It could have been kind of reference to himself taking the treasure into the canyon. I interpreted it as like, take the path. So yeah, so my, my interpretation was, it's just bad writing that's supposed to mean like, take your journey, take the path into the canyon. The sun started to go down. I've been out there for hours and no treasure. We didn't find it anywhere around. And then <laughs> my friend, the poetry expert, started to get like heat exhaustion or heat stroke or something. <laughs> Meanwhile, we're, we're in this canyon. I'm a really good climber. I, I, I've had a lot of experience rock climbing, but you know, my friend was a bit heavier and definitely not like extremely equipped to make an escape from this canyon. And there's only two ways out. One is to go like basically straight up the side of the canyon, which is like a cliff, or the way we came, which would take hours to get back. So I was like, oh God, I, I got my friends into this. Now my friend's like having a medical emergency and I need to figure out how to solve this problem and forget the treasure. So I decided to try to lead us to climb out the side with me as kind of the expert climber guiding my friends. And thank God we found a little goat trail where these wild goats had, or maybe not goats, probably like um, some kind of deer, had left pellets that led us to a little trail that kind of switched back and forth up the side of the cliff face. And like the last bit of it was literally like uh, you had to do like pull-ups to get over the edge uh, back onto the mesa and I was like you know grabbing my friend's arms like come on you could do this uh, just worried that oh god I killed my friend looking for this stupid treasure that was like a bad idea but luckily we made it to the top we were able to get him some water and some help and we didn't die that day but it felt like close. It's a lot closer than I'd like it to have been. A several hours long hike into a canyon that may require scaling a cliff or navigating a switchback goat path doesn't seem like the kind of terrain an 80-year-old man could tackle carrying a 50-pound chest, especially not making several trips in the same day. So, John and his friends, as well as the five unfortunate men who tragically died, they chose to dismiss that very specific clue from Forrest. 
and Forrest rarely gave any clues beyond what existed in his poem. So why dismiss it? Douglas Preston's thoughts on this. I don't think people look for the treasure primarily because they wanted to get rich. I mean, there are a lot easier ways to make a million dollars than looking for a treasure that, you know, 100,000 other people are looking for and that might be risky. I think it appeals to something deeper in human nature than just, oh, I want to be rich. And let's face it, a million dollars nowadays is pretty transformative, but it's not quite like it was, you know, 100 years ago. So I think that the idea that there's this treasure hidden out there appeals to something deeper in human nature than just the desire to get money, to be rich. I think it's something about the mystery of it, the adventure of it, the exploring to find it, to being the person who figures it out when no one else could. Those are very appealing to people, more than just the monetary value. Another reason is that people get attached to their solves, very attached, as we'll discover later in the series. After the tragic deaths of five treasure hunters, Forrest issued a statement to the media. He specified that the chest was hidden somewhere above 5,000 feet, but below 10,200 feet. Forrest's reason for disclosing a minimum and maximum elevation was because, quote, people were climbing to the tops of mountains, end quote. In the statement, Forrest also confirmed that the treasure was indeed confined within the Rocky Mountains that lay within the borders of the lower 48 states. Although Forrest denied a formal request from the government to suspend the hunt and announced that he had retrieved the chest himself in order to avoid more unnecessary deaths, he was genuinely distraught over the tragedies. He organized and paid for search parties. He was in contact with families of the lost and gave statements offering his condolences. He didn't like talking about it, but he he said he was really upset by it. He was really, really upset and beside himself. And I know that he'd offered to fly helicopters and search for people. He'd offered all kinds of assistance, but he, he kept saying the same thing. The treasure is in a place where an 80-year-old man could easily deposit it without any risk to himself. There's no reason for anyone to undergo any risk whatsoever in looking for that treasure. And then he also pointed out to me and others, he said, look, you know, because the chief of the state police in New Mexico had had called on Forrest publicly to stop this nonsense, you know, give up this treasure hunt, get the treasure and stop the hunt. It's dangerous. And Forrest said, look, you know, people drown in swimming pools. Should we pass a law that shuts down all the swimming pools in the the state because somebody drowns in one? And I said, Do you know that over 600 people have died in the Grand Canyon since it became a national park? They're not talking about shutting down the Grand Canyon because people die in it almost every year. And Forrest said, that's right. The obvious argument that was missed there is this. No one is claiming that there's $2 million in gold at the bottom of every swimming pool in the state. So the hunt continued. Let's circle back to the second clue, or 
actually the first and second clues together. It's important to consider them as basically one clue because they're connected, both by the word and, as well as, one would hope, geographically. Begin it where warm waters halt and take it in the canyon down. That seems to infer that if there isn't a canyon to take down in the immediate vicinity of a place where warm waters halt, then you're in the wrong place. And what's with the use of the word it? Bear with me here. The dictionary defines it as a pronoun used to refer to a thing previously mentioned or identified, or referring to a fact or situation previously mentioned or known. Forrest's use of it should be referring to something already mentioned in his poem. For that, we need to consider the first stanza again. The throwaway stanza. As I have gone alone in there, and with my treasures bold, I can keep my secret where, and hint of riches new and old. Okay, we can all acknowledge that it's a clumsily written, rather strange verse. But what's the noun in that first verse Forrest was referring to with the pronoun it in the second? The nouns that jump out are treasure and secret. Nope. Neither one makes sense. So we have to assume that Forrest just began a completely new thought and assumed we would figure out what he means. John Morgan, the seeker who nearly killed his friends, made an interesting point. That's one thing that I've definitely learned over time and thinking about this and other, other endeavors I've been involved with is that the true puzzle isn't the puzzle itself. The true puzzle is learning how the puzzle maker thinks. And once you can do that, then the answers always illuminate themselves. So what was Forrest Fenn, the puzzle maker, thinking? Douglas Preston told us that the poem went through many iterations over the years. Verses written and discarded, added and amended. So we're left with a poem that lacks consistency and rhythm, cadence and lyrical beauty. In the final version, Forrest knew the poem was the start of a treasure hunt, even if the reader did not. Begin it where warm waters halt. The it obviously refers to the hunt itself. Begin your search, your adventure, where warm waters halt. So the it from the second clue must refer to warm waters, the noun in the first clue. Forrest is telling us to find the mysterious place where warm waters halt, then to take that no longer warm water in a canyon down. Okay, what does it mean to take a body of water? If it's a river or a stream, to take a river most likely means to follow it, either on foot or by boat, or maybe swimming. But let's remember Forrest's own words spoken to Douglas Preston. He said, look, it's in a place that an 80-year-old man can get to fairly easily. That's some serious life advice from Forrest that, unfortunately, wasn't always heeded. So we can assume that he didn't swim or kayak or ford raging rapids or even get wet. Would an 80-year-old man feel comfortable wading across a stream or a creek even? Doubtful. It's not in any place an 80-year-old man couldn't easily get to. Plus, Forrest said that, due to the weight of the chest combined with the weight of the treasure, 
it required two trips from his car to the secret location. The thing weighed almost 50 pounds. There's no way at 80 years old he could have carried that anywhere. And he said, well, who said I made one trip? I said, oh, he said, I made several trips. It's not hard to figure things like that out. For a treasure that Forrest curated for two decades, it only took two trips to hide it in the mountains. Forrest Fenn's love of the mountains began early in his life. And that love was so strong that when faced with a slow death from cancer, he thought the best decision for himself and his family was suicide. And he knew in a moment the place to do it. But where was that? Figure that out, and you've solved the puzzle. Although the suicide part turned out to be unnecessary, he still used that location to hide his treasure. Please notice my use of the word hide rather than bury. That's important to remember. Forrest never actually said he buried anything. He said he hid it. He's also on record as saying, just because he didn't say he ever buried it doesn't mean he didn't. Classic Forrest Fenn. Also, realize that finding a bronze chest in the dirt is about as easy as finding a white rabbit in the snow. Anyway, that secret location, apparently easy to access even for an 80-year-old man, held tremendous significance for Forrest for most of his life. To truly get into the mind of this puzzle creator, you need to understand where he came from, how he was raised, and what events shaped his character. And so, as far as Forrest Fenn is concerned, all roads lead to Yellowstone. In Forrest's memoir, The Thrill of the Chase, there's a chapter entitled, In Love with Yellowstone. Now, to call it a chapter is overdoing it a bit. There really aren't any chapters in the book. It's more a series of entries, like a journal, that give the reader a glimpse into the mind of the writer as he remembers events from his past. The In Love with Yellowstone entry is barely a page long and mostly reveals the circumstances of the family's yearly trips to Yellowstone National Park and Forrest's love of the family's 36 Chevy, despite it having no air conditioning and no radio. However, the next handful of entries in the book go deeper into his love of Wyoming, Montana, the small town of West Yellowstone, and his adventures in the sprawling national park for three months of summer every year of his childhood. By virtue of his father's occupation, public school administrator, the family had summers off and would make the most out of that free time. It was a 1,600-mile drive from Temple, Texas to West Yellowstone, Montana. And once there, the family would settle into a rented cabin and avail themselves of the power and beauty of Yellowstone National Park. Fishing, camping, hunting, horseback riding. For a rough and tumble kid like Forrest Fenn, it was heaven on earth. In his book, he recounts his first job selling newspapers, the Montana Standard and the Billings Gazette, on the unpaved streets of West Yellowstone, followed by a dishwashing gig at the Totem Cafe in the center of town. When he was 16, he invited his local Montana friend, Donnie, to join him on an expedition to reenact the travels of Lewis and Clark through Montana almost 150 years earlier. They rented horses, provisioned themselves with candy bars and canteens, and rode off. After days of becoming lost, 
near starvation, losing their horses and other misadventures. Decades later, Forrest looked back on it with tremendous appreciation. At the end of the chapter, he wrote, The mountains continued to beckon me. They always will. Forrest also recounts several stories from his youth concerning his brother, Skippy. The two were close until Skippy's death at age 50 in a scuba diving accident off the coast of Mexico. Skippy was an important part of Forrest's life, and Forrest made sure that his readers were aware of just how special Skippy was and how much potential was wasted by his early death. Forrest wrote, We should have buried him standing up. More X marks the spot after the break. Getting back to the treasure hunt, there was a large group of early adopters who were convinced that, due to Forrest's love of Yellowstone National Park, the treasure must be hidden within its confines. But where? Although his family stayed in West Yellowstone, Montana, the town is only a few miles from the Wyoming state line, where the majority of the park lies. Still, a huge place, and Forrest must have explored hundreds and hundreds of miles of the park throughout his years there. The question becomes, where was the place that he loved so much that he would want to die there? Dale Neitzel is a part-time documentary filmmaker, part-time treasure hunter, and for many years, full-time chronicler of the Fen treasure hunt on his now-defunct blog, TTOTC, short for The Thrill of the Chase. It was up to Dale to administer thousands of daily comments, videos, hints and clues, the parsing of every word out of Forrest's mouth, and, primarily, filtering the content to remove any naysayers or trolls looking to spoil everyone's fun. He also was all in with regard to finding the treasure for himself, and went on, according to his own estimate, between 60 and 70 different excursions. Like John Morgan, Dale originally believed the treasure to be hiding in New Mexico, close to Fenn's home. But after meeting and spending time with Forrest, that changed. I've always enjoyed research. I enjoy history. I enjoy digging into history. And so I felt right from the beginning that when I met Forrest and I sat down and I talked with him, that here was an interesting character. I mean, a really interesting American character. And I felt that although his, you know, his book was fun to read and it, it was interesting, it nowhere near uncovered Forrest's character. And me being a, a documentary filmmaker, I wanted to shoot some interviews with him. I wanted to get him on camera and have him say some things. About, I wanted people to hear his sense of humor. I wanted people to sense his sincerity. I wanted people to sense his enthusiasm for collecting and for, for being out in the wild places. I thought that there were clues in that stuff that would help us find the treasure, that the key to finding the treasure was understanding Forrest, understanding specifically his sense of humor, which I thought was written into the poem. And so I wanted to shoot a series of interviews that would kind of expose these things about Forrest. And I wanted to post them somewhere where people could not only look at them, but where we could discuss them. 
So I didn't just want to throw them up on YouTube because you, you can't discuss anything on YouTube. I needed a place where we could look at the videos and we could discuss him. And so that's how the blog came in to being. I believe it was in August of 2011, right near the end. Maybe it was even autumn. Maybe it was a year after the search had started. So, you know, August or September. I'd been looking for it for about nine or 10 months at that point and had visited with Forrest and had already been out six, seven, eight times. So what happened was I began to see Forrest's love for Yellowstone by being around him. And remember, Forrest always said that there are hints in the book which will help you with the clues. And so as Forrest and I hung out and as I interviewed him, it became clear to me that Yellowstone was his place. And so it became clear to me that that was where I needed to start looking and that I needed to give up on New Mexico. From that point on, there was never any other idea except that Yellowstone area for me. Let's get back to Petra Perkins, who at first was convinced that the treasure lay in Montana, but not in the part of Montana that contained the westernmost chunk of Yellowstone National Park. He kept saying it's very simple and think like a child. And I thought, well, okay, I'm going to think like a child. I didn't know how to do that. but So all of a sudden, on May 22nd, I had an epiphany. And the epiphany was that the first clue, which you have to know before you can do anything else with the other clues, the first clue about where warm waters halt, maybe it was where hot water started. So I thought, where, what does that mean? Where does hot water start? And then I thought, well, the temperature 212, which is Fahrenheit. And that degree temperature is when water turns to steam. And I just kind of sat up in bed and I thought, what? Maybe it's that. So I went and ran and looked at a map of Yellowstone Park because I had decided by then it had to be in Yellowstone Park because he he spent so much time there. And there were so many places in Yellowstone Park that had warm water, hot springs and all those things. So I thought, it's got to be in Yellowstone. And so I looked on the map and there was a Highway 212, a road coming in from Cody, Wyoming, into the park on the northeast side. So I followed the road in from Cody, Wyoming, and I was already excited because Cody is where a lot of people had decided he had been in the year 2010 when he hid the treasure. He was in Cody and left there to go somewhere to hide it. So when I saw Cody in the road two and two, I followed it to the end, and that was where I decided warm waters halt at the end of two and two. And that was Tower Junction. Immediately, the clues just sort of fell in line right after that, within 10 minutes. By the way, Forrest also said one time that if you have Google Earth to look things up, you do not need to be anywhere on the ground until you get to the last clue about the blaze, and then you have to be there. Don't worry. 
We'll get to what a blaze is a little later on. For now, let's recap what we know about the first two clues and some of the possible solves. Because from here on out, the clues get more and more arbitrary, confusing, and contradictory. Begin it where warm waters halt and take it in the canyon down. For some, it was New Mexico and the Rio Grande. For others, it had to do with fishing regulations north of Santa Fe. For Petra Perkins, it began with a strong conviction that it had to be in the mountains of Montana, where gold was first discovered in the U.S., and then she'd reverse-engineer the first few clues to fit with her beliefs. Dale Neitzel, treasure hunter and friend of Forrest Fenn, also believed it was in Santa Fe during his years of searching, until he realized that Yellowstone was a better bet. Eventually, Petra Perkins would also come around to the idea of Yellowstone, with a truly thinking-outside-the-box interpretation of the first clue. Where warm waters halt is actually where hot waters begin. And again, Fenn was 80 years old at the time he hid the chest. It was generally understood that if you found the location that corresponded with where warm waters halt, you would then simply have to follow that water on foot, because he never mentioned a boat was required or that you needed to swim, and he didn't drive right up to the spot, according to him. You just follow that no longer warm water on foot down into a canyon. Okay, we could all agree on that, right? Wrong. Not far, but too far to walk. I mean, I guess that's a clue, but to me, I was like, you have to drive to get there, and then you walk. I didn't have, uh, that's definitely one that I was like, ah, it still fits, it's totally fine. What? On the next episode of X Marks the Spot, the hunt intensifies after Forrest makes a few television appearances. And what began as a little-known play for personal legacy from an aging eccentric millionaire would explode into a global phenomenon. Also, some serious seekers throw their hat into the ring. And, oh yeah, the third clue. Not far, but too far to walk. I mean, really? X Marks the Spot, The Legend of Forest Fen, is a Cavalry Audio production. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and Jason Seagraves. Our executive producers are Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. Our associate producer is Margot Carmichael. Zach McNeese is our sound editor, mixer, and post-production supervisor. Music by Blue Dot Sessions and Soundstripe, with additional original music by Bruce Whitkin. I'm Brandon Morgan, your writer and narrator. Thanks for listening. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.